You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Good to see you, too. Yay! Hi, We're Victoria. glad you're here. Yeah. Well... And it is October, so we're kind yes, of in the lead is. up to Halloween season. Oh, I, we're leading up to the Halloween show. It's coming. I'm so excited. I can't say that my episode today is like super Halloween-y, but it's definitely strange. So I'm going to launch right in. All right. So there are certain jobs out there which are just by their nature extremely badass. And one of those is to be a wildland firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, regular firefighters firefighters are already pretty pretty amazing, and the folks who are out there in the wilderness dealing with massive forest fires are even more intense. Um, and any wildland firefighter is dealing with a lot. It's an incredibly dangerous job. The hours are long and relentless. It's physically extremely taxing. You're carrying tons of heavy equipment and protective clothing doing hard labor in, you know, hellishly hot and fiery conditions. Now, just imagine that you're a firefighter at the scene of a forest fire doing your hard work when all of a sudden you and your crew members are swarmed by a bunch of insects which land on you and start biting you really hard. Absolutely not. Not ideal. Not ideal. Like, feels like a bee sting. Very painful. So. I'm what already dealing with other things, and now I have insects that are, like, stinging me and biting me? No. I'm right? out. I'll, I'll, so, I'll pass. why are these insects here? Most animals, very sensibly, try to flee from a forest fire. <laughs> By fighting okay, human okay. beings being the rare exception. Um, so, what insect in its right mind would be flying toward a forest fire? And huh. the... Yeah. Well, I the would think there'd is, be one that needs fire, but I can't think of one that right. needs fire. Well, you are right, Rachel. Bark beetles. Bark beetles. Yes. The answer is beetles I'm... of the genus oh, okay. Melanophila, <laughs> um, yes. otherwise known as fire beetles. Fire beetles. Okay. What cool. a great name. Yeah. Tell us more about them, please. So they deliberately seek out forest fires. Okay. So that they can mate and lay eggs. This is where that's putting the definition of put it's hot in here. That song. Right? Yeah. Uh, That's a hot relationship, exactly. Very hot. They're literal. You could say they're going uh, hot and heavy. (laughs) Did you say literal Tinder? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> We're all awful. All right, Continue. tell us about beetle tinder. <laughs> yeah. So they find freshly burned trees, sometimes ones that are still smoldering, and then they find a mate. The females 
lay their eggs in the freshly charred bark, and the larvae then eat the burned wood of the trees. Okay. Wow, okay, cool. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty incredible to start with, but you have to wonder why? two main questions. One, why? Exactly, why? Mm-hmm. And two, how are the beetles even finding the forest fires to begin with? Can they smell it? Mm. And why don't we get swarmed with beetles whenever we have a campfire? Oh, God. Hmm. Yeah, I good don't question. even want mm. to have that happen. Right? I mean, are you going to tell us the answer or are you going to leave us hanging here? I am going to tell you the answer. Yes. <laughs> what do you think I I'm have here theories. For? I want to I want to I want to well, know. Sometimes we don't right. get to know. It's wild part of the podcast. I know. So as for the question of why, the beetle larvae are specifically adapted to eat burned wood. And right. if you think about it, this is a niche where you wouldn't get a lot of competitors. Right. Right? Yeah, that, that's exa- that was my exact thought. I was thinking when there's an available niche, something will fill it. Yes. Also, presumably, a lot of the predators of that would normally eat beetles <laughs> and larvae have fled the fire. So you're also less yeah. likely to get yeah. eaten. Uh, you're not wrong. Birds are mostly not hanging out there. And no, they're not. They're hiding or running or flying away. Well, and as for how these beetles actually have infrared heat sensors, hit organs on the underside of their bodies. What? So, <laughs> wow. Okay. You may you may have heard of pit vipers. So, like uh, yeah, yeah. rattlesnakes are in that group of snakes, and they have pit organs in their faces, which help them sense uh, the heat of the small mammals that they feed on. Uh, although the the pit organs of snakes work differently, but the beetles they have um, basically what amounts to a small little pocket of water in their pit organ which when it expands okay. triggers a nerve response okay and so like Ooh. if if the if the water is sort of facing toward the heat it expands more and they know to go that direction <laughs> that's huh. crazy yeah because like how <laughs> i mean okay if you're right at a fire sure but you I mean first of all you're gonna get real close to that fire and like, what if you're 20 miles away? Is this going to be like, you know, my water sack is expanding a bit when I face east. Like, this seems like an incomplete explanation to me. Well, I don't. So we'll get to we'll get to some of that, but they can okay. sense a fire from surprisingly far away. And, wow. you know, that explanation of how their pit organ works may not. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, I saw that in only one of my sources, but hmm. um, they have shown up in areas dozens, dozens of miles away from the nearest coniferous forest, which is where they normally live. Hmm. And they have appeared in very unexpected places, including a tar production what? plant and sugar refineries. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they like so they're, swarm they're the hot pipes. Something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've swarmed hot bats of sugar syrup. I think I think a heat Ew. source has to be a certain oh. size, probably, for them to be attracted to it. Because like, just imagine cooking maple about, syrup and all of oh, a sudden beetles no. are flying in. Like, no, yeah, no, get out, get out. Nightmare. 
That'd be a nightmare. Oh, like, yeah, not at campfires that I've heard about. However, however, <laughs> this is really great. In the 1940s, they s- would swarm the UC Berkeley football stadium during games, oh. or at least one game this happened, biting the fans, uh, apparently attracted by oh. the heat of some 20,000 oh. lit cigarettes. This being uh-huh. the 1940s. No Shut way. Up. I was thinking the lights, but is all this cigarettes? Whoa. Oh yeah. my gosh. I think people I'm I'm old enough to remember when like every restaurant had a smoking section. People yeah. smoke I mean, on airplanes. I remember that. Um and at least in our home state here of Minnesota, they banned indoor smoking long, long ago. But like, you know, you forget how much smoke people used to be around when smoking mm-hmm. was allowed more in in public and it was it was a lot you couldn't go out to a restaurant without coming home just reeking of cigarettes oh i remember different time different Mm -hmm. time we had special clothes we wore just for when we go out to like the nightclub or something like that because you could not wear that until it was deeply laundered you have to hang it up outside or something yeah yeah uh well a study in 2012 did some computer modeling based on uh, a giant oil tank fire that occurred in 1924 in the Central Valley of California that had had okay. attracted beetles. It was known to have attracted beetles. And they knew the volume of oil that had burned what? in this fire. And so okay. they were, yeah, they were able to model how hot and how large it was using various very complicated models of how a fire yes. burns of this size and shape. And given that the closest coniferous forests were 50 to 100 miles away, they were able to estimate the sensitivity to infrared radiation that the beetles likely uh, have. They figure out the beetles are hanging out in the coniferous forest. Mm. Yeah. And okay. Oh, All right. Clever. I like it. Like they're I not, like they're not hanging out in the central Valley where there are basically no trees. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So they estimated the sensitivity to um, lead to a range of 130 kilometers to be able to detect a forest fire. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. And it seems that they may also be able to detect smoke with their antennae. Okay. Which is perhaps another reason that they swarmed the Berkeley (laughs) football stadium. Probably. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they were just fans too. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Good game, I bet. Um, One thing I started wondering as I was looking into this was why are the beetles biting? Why are they biting the firefighters? Uh, Victoria, can I ask ask a question? Yeah. Why are the beetles biting? Well, good question, Kirk. I was wondering that myself. Yeah. Uh, They seem to, and you know, based on the accounts I was reading, they seem to do this aggressively rather than defensively. Okay. Uh, and the most convincing explanation I've seen is that anything vertical that, vertical that they land on in a fire zone is basically a tree to them, even if Assume it's in a fact tree. a firefighter. Gotcha. So they might yep. be trying to like grip, bite, or kind of poke into the wood in order to lay their eggs right. on it. Right. Maybe I don't. It didn't. It's. I'll say mm, this. It's an explanation. It's an explanation stands to be proven true or false but it's not yeah. it's not not unreasonable yeah they think you're a tree and they're trying to take a bite and go no that's not charred keep going Moving on. right 
But anyway, we Although made... I gotta imagine firefighters, firefighters probably are a little charred and smell like yeah. smoke oh a gosh. lot. So yeah, I'm sure they do smell like burned trees. Uh yeah, so we may be seeing more of these beetles as we're experiencing more firefighters, fire firefighters, fire forest fires mm-hmm. due to climate change. Um so you may hear more about these beetles in the future. And uh they're just making life a little harder for the firefighters, but doing something very cool. That's pretty fun. Wow. Yeah. Nature finds a way. Nature finds a way. My sources this week were a Vox.com article from July 2023, which was uh, very informative. And the paper I mentioned about the fire modeling was um, by Schmitz and Buzak from the journal Plus One in 2012. And I also got some good information from the American Museum of Natural History. Thanks, Victoria. So we are going to take, yeah, you're welcome. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, Kirk will have something for us. Mm-hmm. On August 29th, 1859, the sun let off a large solar flare that sparked impressive northern lights across the northern hemisphere, perhaps in the summer, southern hemisphere as well. We know today that the Northern Lights are triggered mostly by solar flares from the sun. And at the time, though, back in like 1859, the connection between solar flares and Northern Lights was not understood for a pretty good reason. People didn't know what solar flares were. Like they didn't apparently know they existed yet. Uh, No one had ever seen germs were a thing. Turns out the first ever solar flare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there was a lot we needed to learn. Starting to figure Uh, it out. But yeah. There was a cool time, lots of new science and stuff. It turns out the first ever solar flare was recorded by humans, as luck would have it, the very next day. On September 1st, 1859, (laughs) there was two different uh, British astronomers, weirdly, both of them named Richard, uh, (laughs) and they happened to see and record a large solar flare on (laughs) the surface of the sun on September 1st. So very cool. And they both wrote it up and it was, you know, like, yay, they saw something. Now, usually it takes two days, uh, approximately, for the charged particles from what's called a coronal mass ejection. That's the stuff that gets uh, shot off from the sun during a solar flare. It takes usually about two days to reach Earth. That is, if it's even pointed toward us, right? Like, Or it could be pointed right at us, but we're not there anymore by the time it gets to us, right? Because the Earth is always moving. So... Um, you know, sometimes they do end up getting pointed in the right direction and we, you know, we plow into it, it plows into us. When that happens, it you know, it usually takes about two days. How we think, however, that remember I said there was northern lights on August 29th, yeah. and this was September 1st. Yeah. We think that on August 29th, there probably also was a large solar flare and it basically cleared the path between the sun and the earth. There is some stuff there, some particles and things that slow stuff down. So this first one was like a snowplow that cleared the path. So the second coronal mass ejection heading toward the Earth, instead of it taking two days, it cleared all 93 million miles of distance in just 17 what? hours. Whoa. Which is really fast. <laughs> really, really fast. Wow. Um, and what these astronomers in England didn't realize when they recorded uh, that solar flare was that it wasn't just the first solar flare ever recorded, which would have been a big deal, but it is to this day 
still the largest and most impactful coronal mass ejection that has ever struck the earth in recorded <laughs> history. So like, wow. what are the odds that the first one humans ever happened to see and go, oh, hey, I saw some of the sun, I should, I should record this, also happens the to largest. be the biggest. Uh, and I will put a little asterisk, maybe not the biggest ever seen, the biggest that has ever then hit the earth that we've realized nice. was the cause of that. I'm talking today um, about the Carrington event. And this was named after Richard Carrington, who was one of the two guys who oh, so one Richard gets uh, so, one Richard gets recognition forever, and the other one just gets forgotten. <laughs> yeah, I'm really not sure why. I feel kind of bad about that, but I'm not they the one who named it. Okay. That would have been better, right? right. Anyway, <laughs> well, it it might have been more appropriate when you hear what happened. We'll come to it. Um, so. Likely the first people to notice something strange was going on, other than maybe seeing some northern lights, were telegraph operators. And yes, we did have telegraphs mm -hmm. back in 1859. Uh, Aurora can induce electrical currents in wires. And back in 1859, telegraph lines were really the only long wires on Earth. Uh, and I have here for you a snippet of a conversation between two telegraph operators, one in Portland, Maine, the other in Boston, Massachusetts. And this was on the night of September 2nd. So presumably the clock had, had rolled over to midnight. Uh, keep in mind, this was telegraphy. So there's, um, this was actually like a Morris code conversation. They weren't going, you know, hello, friend, how are you today? <laughs> this, is, this is all right. dots and dashes. But here's what it said. Um, Boston operator to Portland operator, please cut off your battery power source entirely for 15 minutes. Portland operator, will do so. It is now disconnected. Boston. Mine is disconnected, and we are working with the auroral current. How do you receive my writing? Portland. Better than with our batteries on. Current comes and goes gradually. Boston. <laughs> my current is very strong at times, and we can work better without the batteries, as the aurora seems to neutralize and augment our batteries alternately, making current too strong at times for our relay magnets. Suppose we work without batteries while we're affected by this trouble? Portland. Very well. Shall I go ahead with business? Boston. Yes, go ahead. It's very cordial conversation. Uh, this conversation was reported in the Boston Evening Traveler newspaper. They reported that the telegraph operators were able to carry on their work for two hours without having to use any battery power to run the telegraph machines. Wild. Oh my gosh. And at the time, telegraph machines were run off batteries. They just shut the batteries off and had a two-hour conversation sending messages back and forth what? with no power being put into the system because the Aurora <laughs> itself was creating so much like juice in the system, which is wild. That's nuts. This Aurora's creating current in telegraph lines apparently had been sort of seen before as a bit of a novelty. Um, like they had noticed when the Aurora is strong, you'd be able to get maybe like That's a word wild. or two through on a telegraph when it was turned off. But yeah. this was two hours. And they're like, this is great. Just leave the batteries off. It works, it works, it works better this way, which is <laughs> crazy. So they mentioned something about like how it was too powerful with they're using the batteries and That's the, insane. Uh, the Aurora power. And it sounds like that caused quite a lot of problem because <laughs> this is nicer. There were some offices where sparks were seen shooting out of the the machinery. Um, telegraph towers had sparks like shooting often basically the, you know, like the, the pylons you'd see on the side of the railroad track with how the, the, 
you know, looks like telephone lines. Oh. There was sparks shooting off those. And actually one, uh, there's been at least one recorded case where a telegraph office, I think in Pittsburgh, actually caught on fire what? due to this phenomenon. That's so this nuts. was fun for these guys, but kind of bad news overall. These aurora that night were intense. The aurora was visible all the way, obviously from the poles, but also to areas where aurora are not usually seen, su- such as South Central Mexico, what? Cuba, <laughs> Hawaii, Southern Japan. Oh. Uh, this was a major event that also That's affected the South Pole. There was all kinds of reports from Australia at the time. So as you can imagine, uh, our world is now... Yeah, uh-huh. but think about current day. Our world is now crisscrossed by more than just telegraph lines, right? Yeah. And another Carrington-level event could prove disastrous uh, and more than just like, oh, an interesting anomaly on the telegraph wires. We've actually come kind of close to having this happen again. In 1989, I, I'm, I remember a little bit of this. We had a Carrington-level CME or coronal mass ejection that was ejected from the sun. But luckily... It did not directly hurt hit Earth. Uh, we only got a glancing blow. It was enough, though, that we got a taste of what is possible. The space shuttle was in orbit at the time mm-hmm. and suffered bad readouts on at least one of the computer systems, which could have been very dangerous. Mm, uh, the yeah. GOES weather satellites were temporarily disabled. Uh, NASA's TDRIS uh, satellite system basically had hundreds and hundreds of faults that were reported. And... I'm trying to think what else. Like, so shortwave radio communication was knocked Whoa. out over much of the world. Aurora were seen as far south as Florida. <laughs> and keep in mind, this is a glancing blow. Uh, the U.S. power grid, mm-hmm. the U.S. power grid, because now we got power lines like crisscrossing the country, right? Uh, the power grid had to deal with amazingly large induced currents that were causing circuit breakers to start to want to trip and stuff, cause significant ir- interference, and most notably in Canada where the induced currents were stronger because they're closer to, you know, the North Pole and where Aurora is. Also, the underlying geology means that Aurora can't, the electrical current can't travel through the ground as well because it's mostly rock. And so mm. it's like, mm, what can I travel on? Ooh, big wires. Let's travel on these. And the power grid in Canada, for a good chunk of Canada, failed, especially in the Quebec area. Uh, over the course of 90 seconds is all it took to plunge millions of people into darkness Whoa. and cause a nine-hour blackout over much of Canada. Wow. And this was like a, a really big deal at the time. Uh, so but, basically what's happening is all, all the um, breakers were just tripping, and so it just shut the whole system down. But Kirk, why didn't they just turn off the batteries? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't right? just, just, just work that way anymore. Um, <laughs> that was good, Victoria. But yeah, it was, it was mostly, uh, I think, an issue of something. Thanks. The biggest issue was that the breakers were tripping because uh, they, they, yeah. they saw like a fault. Like what's all the extra current was a trip. And you don't really expect that like all of them across <laughs> like several territories are all going to trip at once. So uh, yeah. not great. So that was a really bad situation, but it was only a glancing blow, right? And there's a lot of concern that the earth, you know, if it took a direct hit, could be disastrous and are a highly wired mm-hmm. and electrified society. And I've known about that for a long time and thought that was a pretty amazing sort of story, but it turns out something I read recently kind of hints that it could actually be far worse what because there that? might be something even larger what? looming <laughs> out there. So scientists what? you know, have been studying the, the Carrington event, but they've also recently been studying something called Miyake events uh, that could be something even larger there was a japanese physicist uh, her name was uh, fusa miyaki 
uh, who published a paper in 2012 where she analyzed carbon-14 in tree rings. Now, uh, carbon is regularly pulled out of the atmosphere by trees. And by looking at the ratio of like carbon-12 to the sl slightly radioactive carbon-14, like you can mm -hmm. estimate how old something is. So this is done you know, for carbon dating and all the time. And what she was looking at, though, was individual tree rings, like how much carbon-14 is in individual tree rings. Because she got right. tipped off that maybe there was something funny going on in some of these trees. And um, turns out she definitely found something strange. Carbon-14 is naturally created in our atmosphere when high-energy cosmic rays from space hit of the atmosphere and it creates carbon-14 and then plants can take that up and it gets incorporated into their leaves and stems and tree right. barks and even their tree rings right yep. so if if we get a huge influx of these high energy cosmic rays uh that could mean that you're going to get more carbon-14 and that's exactly what she found in these tree rings she found large sparks of carbon-14 in the year 774 ce uh, and what researchers and others then studied, they, they, they went out and uh, her team, those like I uh, went out and studied more oof. and other people those started are old looking at trees, trees. Just on a side note, those and are they found, ancient trees. I mean, 774 was, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was a while ago. Right. Um, but the number that's, that's recent, Rachel, compared to the numbers I'm about to throw at you. Cause they started to look at other trees and they found other radiation spikes in these trees. One in 7176 <laughs> BCE, 5410 oh, okay. BCE, 5259 BCE, 663 Dang. BCE, and then some in the common area, common era. Uh, there was one that kind of spanned 993 to 994. So, uh, you know, about a thousand years ago or so, Ooh. give or take. Uh, so it appears this is a reoccurring you know, thing that happened over the last 9,300 years, which is about how far back we can go with trees. We uh -huh. can't go much further uh -huh. back than that. Kirk in the editing booth here, jumping in to let you know, I literally just finished saying, you can't go much back further than that. And uh, while I'm editing this episode of the podcast, a brand new article just came out saying that they found another Miyake event in trees 17,500 years old, uh, which is astounding. So apparently... They can go back even further, and this event they found was even more powerful than all the other ones that are found. So, little late-breaking stuff throwing into the episode. We'll get back to the show. Um, these could indicate massive blasts of solar radiation hitting the Earth and being captured in tree rings. But how massive? Well, the Carrington event has engineers worried about a, uh, you know, about a repeat, and they've been hardening systems against that sort of blast as best they can. And the question comes up, are they doing enough? Because researchers estimate that these, what they now call these Miyake events, were up to 80 times more powerful than the Carrington event. What? Yeah. <laughs> this is the planet you live on, folks. To say that one of these occurring would be damaging is an understatement. That's, that's a gross understatement, Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how likely is another one of these events? The trouble is we don't really know. We'd like more data. Uh, the data we have on them is limited. Given the data we have right now, I think I saw one paper kind of estimate like a 1% chance in any given decade, which is higher than I would like. But like, you that know, I think one of, one, of the research, than I would one, like. yeah. one of the researchers said, look, I'm more worried about being hit by a bus than one of these happening in my lifetime. So probably not that bad. Um, 
Sure. And it's like, you know, uh, we're, we're trying to harden systems against, th- against things like this. Uh, we're not there yet. You know, if this were to happen today, the damage to technology would be immense. Uh, you know, the and damage to satellite systems and delicate electronics, it could be really bad. If the lights do go out, um, at least we'd have some amazing aurora to watch under dark, dark skies. Uh, yeah. there, there has, I will say, there has been some Yay. recent research that is calling into question. Um, some of the data seems like it doesn't maybe line up with what we'd expect from the sun. And so researchers are starting to even think, well, could these events actually not have been from the sun? Could this have been from like a nearby supernova or some other sort of celestial event outside our solar system or like a passing comet or something else that somehow affected uh, the amount of cosmic radiation the Earth was getting for like one day, which is weird, really weird. But, you know, yeah, I got to tell you, we've only been living on this planet with modern technology for a blink of an eye. We've only been studying nature for a slightly longer blink. And there are still mysteries to be found and discoveries to be made. And, you know, it certainly makes for an interesting time to be alive, learning about our planet, sun and universe. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll learn more about this in the years to come. Hopefully not learning it the hard way. Right. Yeah. Let's not have a practical demonstration. Nope. Nope. As interesting as it might be, I'm going to (laughs) pass. So uh, my sources this week for this story uh, were Science News, uh, My Brain. Uh, Scientific American and Wikipedia. <laughs> Your brain. <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff I just have in my brain because I'm a giant nerd. So <laughs> thought I'd just go ahead and just cite that and get it out of the way. Yeah. 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 That's what I have. And uh, we're going to take a short break and we come back. It'll be Rachel's turn. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Before we get to Rachel's segment, you know what? There's something we have to address. We, we, as you know, we have a, a Patreon. You, you can go to patreon.com slash strange by nature. And we have, we have patrons who uh, help support this show, which we very much appreciate. And one of the cool things is sometimes our patrons send us funny things. They send us memes. They send us uh, story ideas. And sometimes they send us questions. This one... Um, it's a doozy, and we're going to talk about it uh, in between our segments here. Rachel, yeah. do you want to tell our listeners what question, who sent it, and what question we got? So this question uh, came from our patron, Amanda. This is the same person who sent me pineapple-flavored gummy bears just because she yeah, knew she I would is. hate them. <laughs> like, there weren't any other oh. flavors. They were just pineapple. If you're pineapple, new listeners... If you're a new listener, you need to understand that all three of us <laughs> hate pineapple. Hate pineapple. So find it and just to be. Uh, it's I don't like that he eats me back. Anyway. So yep. So and so she sent us all the gummy bears that were only pineapple, uh, only the pineapple flavored. And now, mm-hmm. if that wasn't no. enough, she sent us this uh, question. This question. What is the question? The question is: uh, Would you rather? It is. Would you rather? eat a 16 ounce can of pineapple once a week for a year and then Awful. be able to bring back five things 16 ounces is a lot too so much <laughs> and be able and then be able to bring back five things from extinction or near extinction or eat a like a whole fresh pineapple 
once a week mm-hmm. for a year and then be able to bring mm-hmm. seven things from extinction or near extinction. And then what would we bring back to then sustainable populations? Which, thank you, Amanda. I do appreciate the caveat this is of, evil. Uh, of sustainable populations. Super but evil. at the same time, this is the worst question you could have asked me. <laughs> of us, truly. I oh, hate pineapple. <laughs> I, I so, think we may all have the same answer to the first part, I'm guessing. But I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. I mean, if I have to eat it for a year, I'd rather have like fresh pineapple, right? And then I yeah, get seven too. things. Absolutely. I go for the fresh. I agree. Although, doesn't um, isn't like the enzyme inactivated in canned pineapple? Well, I looked. I did a little, you know, reading up on this, and both canned pineapple tends to have a pretty consistent pH, whereas fresh pineapple. Mm-hmm. Uh, can vary wildly. You can get some that is much more acidic than uh, canned pineapple, and you can also find some that's much less acidic. And I think the the enzyme is part of it, but I think the acidity is part of what I just don't really like because it makes my mouth taste feel kind of gross. And yeah, uh, you know, I mm-hmm. I've I don't eat pineapple, but from what I hear, uh, you know, uh, fresh is the better. fresh pineapple. People are like, oh, my God, this is so much better. Yeah. So I feel like she really threw us a bone here by saying that if you eat the yeah. fresh, you can bring more species back because yeah. it's like, OK, I'd probably rather have the fresh anyways. Uh, and then I can bring, bring more species back from extinction. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to go that route. I, uh, Maybe I'd even learn to like it. Me too. I mean. I really don't like pineapple, but I feel like if I had to eat it that much, I would at least learn to tolerate yeah. it. Yeah. I, I mean, and what a, a hero we'd be for bringing back. Do, mm. I, you know, what she didn't specify, if we all do that, do we each get to bring seven back or is it seven for the group? Mm. And we all have to eat pineapple every week. I, I think if she all, didn't clarify, she didn't see, clarify, but I will say, I would assume. That I think it's, it's 21 species. I think it's 21 species because if all three of us have to eat pineapple, yeah, we're work. a year. We get seven species each. <laughs> I'm. I don't I'm think not. we have time to go through 21 species here on the show. No. Should we give like what's what's like your top one or two? If you could uh, extinct or near extinct species you want to bring back, go for it. What do you got? I got to go with the cheetah. I just covered it, so they need some help. They would love some love. Um, cheetah is like my first one. Hmm. I think I would choose the American chestnut tree. Ooh. That's yeah, that's a good that's one. That's a good one. Very, very cool. I'm gonna go for the first one. I'll say white rhinos. Ooh, that's also an excellent one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then I'm gonna go ahead and do my second one too. Then I'm gonna go a little uh, you know, very different. I'm gonna go with the dodo bird. Yeah. I'd dodo. love to see a dodo. Yeah. And have a sustainable population. I feel like if we were able to bring dodos back now, uh, we probably wouldn't be hunting them for food as much. So, like, I, I feel like they so. might have a chance to make it, you know? Mm-hmm. Agree. You got a second one? I mm. I, uh, think I would go with passenger pigeon. Oh, oh that wow. would be fun. That would be amazing. Very good. Very good. Oh, man. Carolina parakeets up there too. Mm. Ooh, that one's good. Mm. I thought about ivory woodpeckers as well. Ooh, ivory bill, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, look, there's so many. We we could literally do, you know, 21 species. You could do a lot more than 21. But, we, uh, we could. Fun to think about. Fun to think about. And oh, maybe, man. you know, if you want to do a little Jurassic Park, we can uh, we can get on that. But instead of making dinosaurs, we just make <laughs> Horrifying. Well, birds or dinosaurs. So we make dinosaurs. If you the bring the, the woodpecker back and the dodo back and the passenger pigeon and the Carolina parakeet, the, technically you are bringing dinosaurs back. So you are. Da, 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 ba, da, 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 da. All right. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's end this and say thank you to Amanda. Thank you to all Thanks, of our patrons. Amanda. We couldn't do this without you. If Thanks, you've got Amanda. some question you want us to answer and you're one of our patrons, send us a message through Patreon. Uh, and if you're not and you want to send us a message, well, just head on over to patreon.com slash strange by nature and uh, go ahead and sign up for one of our three levels and you can get bonus content and all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. All right. So I have opinions and this is not a surprise for anybody. And this no, particular that's why opinion, you're on a podcast. exactly, might be controversial, but I think Christmas music Ooh. should not be played until technically. I think it shouldn't be played until after Thanksgiving, but I will tolerate it. This is not controversial in any way, Halloween. shape, or form. This is the correct answer, I, I Rachel. Agree. Thank you. Absolutely yes. not. Thank not until after Thanksgiving. Oh, I yep. had a roommate once that started playing it. And in if you August. go before Halloween, I will be very angry. Yeah, I had a, I did, I had a roommate, I had a, thank you, one holiday at a time, I did, I had a roommate that once uh, played it starting in like August, and I'm like, no, nope, it was the worst. That's grounds for a breakup of the roommate. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I think it, at the very least after Halloween, especially since Halloween is just such an excellent uh, holiday on its own. The best, yeah. With mm-hmm. my regards to spooky season, I did want to discuss something I'm that so, is I'm very... I'm so curious where this story is going, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. Where, where it is well... Into, I want to talk about something that is well integrated into the Christmas season. But this particular okay. uh, nature bit is... I don't think it's part of the Christmas season or spirit or anything like that at all. I think it's rather spooky and kind of horrifying. So what do you both know? Reindeer. That's fair. No. Uh, What do you both know about mistletoe? Ah, I knew that's where you were going. Uh, It's a parasitic plant. That's what I know. Mm-hmm. People what kiss you, you when you stand under it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean that. Smoochy, yeah. smoochy. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I believe there's some, uh, you know, there's some some druid connections as well and stuff like culturally. Yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, what do you I think? It grows on oak trees. Interesting. All right, so we're gonna dig into mistletoe today. For nice. those of you who don't know, it it's a, is... It's such a weird halloween topic. Such, All right. Well, I know, but it, it's a parasite. It's, it's not Halloween yet. It's supposed to be Christmassy, and it's not, Hall- it's not Halloween yet. I have a good topic for that one. But it resembles... You think it's more like, of a Jack Skellington-type situation? Exactly. Okay. So, mistletoe resembles, to me at least when I was looking at pictures, it resembles a bush, but it's attached to another yeah. tree. Like Victoria said, Absolutely. it is a parasitic plant. It's actually a hemi-parasitic plant, 
um, as when it is really young, it does do some photosynthesis, but just until okay, it can okay. really dig its not roots into the tree. So mistletoe. Partial for those alone at home. There we go. Yeah, they're little like tendrils right in. So they look a lot like a bush uh, that is a different color than the host tree that they're inhabiting. There are somewhere around, I'm going to talk mostly in generals when it comes to, uh, when it comes to mistletoe, because there's something like, let me double check this number here. I saw it was like three to do. There is, (laughs) there's more than four, Kirk. There are approximately 400. There's 450 species of mistletoe type plants. I was only off by an order of magnitude, really. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, truly. (laughs) Um, But they are actually, they're about 60 to 70, like the species that they actually host on. So depending on the particular species and genus and where they might be, some are really only on hardwood trees some are more softwood trees so like evergreen trees like uh firs and pines and such or like victoria said or oak trees and they're a symbol of christmas um which i could go into the i weirdly yeah it actually stems from druidic tradition uh the reason why it is tied into christmas um i am going to go into it well, that's I what lied. i thought because uh celtic <laughs> druids <laughs> i lied we are going to go into it not to talk about celtic this okay druids, well. i will celtic druids actually like cut pieces of it and it they would tie it in bundles over their um over their doorways and such to bring um to help ward off and cleanse at the mid or the winter solstice um, to help right, right. bring in good energy and everything. Anyway, uh-huh. so, which is really cool, really fun. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about I think kissing is good energy. I, I agree. It, it obviously, like, changed <laughs> over many, many years. Um, but A little bit. Just, just a titch. So, mistletoe is a, this woody herbaceous like leafy plant that looks a lot like a shrub it's up in a tree but what happens is so it has these little berries which we're all pretty used to these little berries get eaten Mm -hmm. by birds and those little bit those it goes through the digestion track of a bird gets pooped out onto a tree somewhere and that little seed will Uh then start to grow It starts photosynthesizing, but what will happen is the once it starts to photosynthesize wherever it might land, it creates, it has like, as it starts to grow, it has this flat platform that it attaches to the tree. It's a way for it to support itself. And underneath, it creates a wedge. And that wedge goes into the tree. The wedge is kind of like 
a version of roots. It's seeking out the xylem and phloem of the tree that it's attached to. And once it taps in to that xylem, it starts taking the nutrients and water from the tree. Which is wild. Like, I wouldn't have expected Uh that when it came to mistletoes in the first place. And they're actually really good. Uh, for birds, like about 90 bird species are actually specialized uh, in mistletoe berries. Like that's what they eat and that's it, huh. which is wild. Wow. Oh. Um, but it, so that little seed, once it um, is attached and has started to grow, it will then continue to uh, grow around the uh, tree that it is sitting on and creates its own little shrub, <laughs> creates berries, has these beautiful flowers, which are bird-pollinated flowers. Oh, cool. And then proceeds to... Um, and the cycle starts all over again. Sure, sure. Does it's, it, but it, it doesn't just flower one time and die, does it? Is it like a, rep- a repeating? Yes, it is a, it is a, what's the word? Perennial uh, bush. Okay, okay, good. That's the word. Yeah, it's gotcha. perennial. So it doesn't just go away. Because some of them can get quite large. Grow, I'd be impressed grow. if that was all in one year. They absolutely can. The wild thing, I think, about all of this, like it is a parasite, is taking from the host tree. But it doesn't, like, it doesn't take enough to kill the tree unless there's multiple sure. mistletoe bushes and then it might kill the tree. Which, you know, as a okay. parasite, you don't want to take so much because if you take everything, then your host dies and you die pretty much. That's bad form. Yeah, yeah. we don't love that. The one thing I wanted, the last thing I wanted to say about mistletoe, it's a little shorter of a topic, but we've had a long episode today, uh, is the fact that all the parts, if you eat too, if you eat just a few too many, the berries, the leaves, the bark, if humans eat them, they are pretty poisonous. Yeah, Um, not great. Is not a good thing. Don't don't eat it, which I always think is wild yeah. considering we hang them over a tree, over like doorways and everything. They're a symbol of love or whatever. And they vary in toxicity, but for the most part, usually it's not fatal. But you can still so I, get I anything. Have, usually I have it's a not solution. fatal. <laughs> don't eat I it. I have a solution here, Rachel. Well, no, see, I mean, yes, to be clear. But you're complaining, you start off your story complaining that people were celebrating Christmas too early. Right. Maybe we need to be putting up the mistletoe at Halloween because it's actually mm. pretty spooky and parasitic and poisonous. And, you know, right. that can be, you know, oh, look, I have a Christmas decoration up, but it's really for Halloween because it fits better with Halloween. Right. Absolutely. Which was the point of this in the first place. Uh, Absolutely. Because it is a spooky little plant that is slowly taking nutrients away from its host and for some reason it is a symbol of christmas not halloween and it should be (laughs) 
That's we're what taking I have it back. We're making it. Ho- it's Halloween. Halloween. Awesome. It's coming. Get your mistletoe <laughs> right. up. <laughs> it's a new tradition. Yeah. There we go. All right. You can tell so the strange by nature listeners by the mistletoe on their door. <laughs> and then everyone's going to want to kiss you on Halloween. Spirits. That could be kind of weird. I don't know. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, no. not great. Trick no. or treat or kiss. Oh, no. 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 We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Oh, no. No. no, 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 no. We're not doing that. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. That's what it's I have weird. for all y'all this week. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. Oh, you know, Bye. 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 Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.